Welcome to the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Pantsuit Nation is an online community of 3.7 million people who have come together to resist the current administration through activism, advocacy, and the power of personal narrative. Um, I'm recording alone today because unfortunately Libby has one of those summer colds that are the absolute worst, um, so she can't join me. But luckily, I have an amazing guest to talk to today. Um, I'm speaking with Amber Goodwin, who is the founding director of the Community Justice Reform Coalition. CJRC is a national coalition working on policy reform and building resources for communities of color working at the nexus of gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform. Amber has spent the last 15 years working for advocacy, grassroots, and electoral campaigns. And prior to founding CJRC, she was the National Advocacy Director for Americans for Responsible Solutions, which is the gun violence prevention organization founded by former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. She also helped found the Women's Coalition for Common Sense, a multi-sector group of national women leaders who joined forces to reduce gun violence and founded the National Gun Violence Prevention, Race, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force. Amber has been featured in multiple news outlets and has been awarded the Google PDF Fellowship Award and was recently honored as a change agent by being named one of Essence's Woke 100 Women. And she's also traveled as a delegate to both Taiwan and Vietnam on behalf of the United States for bicultural exchanges. So welcome to the Pansy Nation podcast, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, So I wanted to have you first um, tell us more about the Community Justice Reform Coalition. What is this organization doing? Yeah, well, we are about a three-year-old national advocacy organization really looking at the intersection of gun violence prevention and um, criminal justice reform. And we really think that the lives that we all live, especially those of us who are either marginalized by society, if we're people of color, women, um, low income, um, really can't afford to um, uh, have our lives lived in silos. And so we can't just be thinking about gun violence prevention and not thinking about things like domestic violence and police reform and other issues around uh, criminal justice reform. And so um, uh, this organization really was started, um, you mentioned the National Gun Violence Prevention Task Force that I helped to start, and we really did see this gaping hole in the national movement around gun violence prevention um, to really look at the intersections of all these different issues that impact people who are directly impacted by Uh, gun violence or the criminal justice system. And so we really work to um, change the narrative around gun violence and who is impacted by gun violence. And we have different programs that specifically look at um, how do we change that narrative through media, through messaging, um, and through leadership development. Um, We also work on policy on every single level of government. And so really making Mm. sure that we're holding elected officials accountable, not just when it's election season, but also I think more importantly, um, when they are casting votes in their local city council or uh, um, whenever they're in Congress. And we lastly really think it's important that the people who are getting the resources to do the work around gun violence are the people who need it the most um, and those that are many times furthest away from the power that exists within many kind of movements that we see in the progressive Mm. movement. And so we're trying to change that dynamic um, and really leading with, again, the people that are that are impacted by everyday gun violence. That's such a critical part of um, what makes your organization really stand out is that you really start at the community level um, so that the resources are not, you know, 
from the top down, this is what we think you need. It's really about what the communities have recognized for themselves is is necessary in creating um, safer spaces for for themselves. Um, and yeah. I think that that's just a, a model that um, I think a lot of organizations could benefit from from replicating. Yeah, we we saw that one thing that I didn't know before I started working specifically on gun violence was my definition of safety is probably completely different than your definition of safety, but for mm. the progressive or conservative or most movements who had worked on an issue around the issue of public safety in general, it has kind of just been defined that safety meant more police or it meant take people's guns away this way or it meant incarcerating people. And so that was definitely a, a question that we struggled with each other on because, the, you know, it is different for every single person, but um, we wanted to make sure that people had the self-determination to figure out what safety meant, um, and that was also really at the, the heart of how we wanted to shape the organization as well. That's great. I, such an important foundational question to um, what you're trying to do. And you just mentioned that you got into gun violence work at one point. And I, I was wondering, I mean, this is how I have primarily known you and known your work as being with um, CJRC. And has gun violence always been at um, the crux of the work that you're doing? Or um, how did you come to this particular field? By accident. <laughs> so mm. I, um, I had, I, I've just been mostly a political nomad nerd slash, you know, uh, I'm like a, you know, there's serial entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and I'm just a serial organizer. And so I spent about 15, 16 years working on different campaigns, um, a lot of policy work, uh, master's in social policy. And um, I worked on a political campaign at my home state of Texas in 2014. Um, and as soon as that, so almost four years ago, um, I got a call from a friend who said that Gabby Giffords was looking for someone to help lead their policy work um, on the state level, and it was important for me leading that I wanted to switch from working more nationally to working in local states, but I still wanted to kind of be able to be hyper-local, but also have kind of a national feel of, of what the movement was doing. Um, so I was mm-hmm. actually sitting on the beach, and my friend Sieta <laughs> called <laughs> me and said, you need to apply for this job, and I actually said on the phone, and then in my subsequent interview with the team at Gifford's organization that guns were not my issue and they just never had, I had never even thought about, I've been so fortunate and privileged that guns have not impacted me directly. Um, and Mm -hmm. it just, it, it, it wasn't a part of even my lexicon, even growing up in Texas that I was like, we had a gun free house and I had never been impacted by it. So that was the, I getting the job at Gifford's was my first, um, foot into the door of working a lot. I had worked on criminal justice work before policy work, but I had not done anything on guns. So, um, and, and really the, the, the reasoning behind the kind of aha moment for me on starting CJRC really was that same year in 2015, the following year, I guess, um, three years ago when um, the Charleston shooting happened. And for mm-hmm. me, I had been thinking about policy very um, broadly and narrowly at the same time, if that makes sense. I was thinking about gun violence was a huge issue, um, but the narrow way to fix it was to fix it with this, you know, background checks or this one policy that would potentially get passed in Congress. And um, when I saw the survivors and the victims in, um, in, in Charleston, they, they looked like me and they looked like 
my family, and um, it really mm-hmm. changed my perspective on who is considered a survivor and who is considered worth saving, um, and also how um, people, who is also how police and kind of the federal government are all involved in, in this work that, that I was trying to do. And so that definitely changed um, me into thinking more about how, um, what kind of gaps existed in, in the movement. Mm. Yeah, that um, is a good segue to my next question. Um, I think the you know the Charleston shooting was so um, just so horrific in its nature, and it ha- created one of those kind of bumps in the conversation about gun violence. And we're seeing that again in the ripple effects, particularly from the shooting in Parkland. Um, and there are so many of these students who are out there talking about their experience with gun violence and mass shootings. And a lot of those students are mostly white. And so I'm wondering how um, your work with CG, excuse me, how your work with CJRC um, dovetails with the work that the March for Our Lives students are doing and how that um, the attention that something like that event gets can um, be part of your narrative or whether it's not something that you talk about at CGRC because there's sort of different kinds of um, communities that are affected. Yeah, I mean, the the Parkland uh, students and their movement uh, movement um, for our lives has had a huge, I think it's had a huge impact on our country um, because I think Mm-hmm. I would be remiss to say that it didn't, even though I think that for us, it really highlighted that what many of us have been saying for a while um, was true, <laughs> um, and that we, mm-hmm. our voices weren't listened to. And I think, you know, Pastor Michael McBride, one of the co-founders of CJRC, said it very eloquently in the New York Times, where people weren't trained to hear, really hear and listen to the voices of people who are black and female and um, you know, exhibit certain behaviors um, that potentially were survivors or even people like me. People weren't trained to think that I could be a leader in this movement. And so mm-hmm. when there were people like Emma and um, David Hogg and others who exemplifies what it looks like when society allows people, no matter what their age or race is, to have the self-determination to figure out what it is you need to be successful and what it is you need to do to make change. For me, that was, it just exemplified um, and and helps us give an example to others that don't think it's important for survivors or don't think it's important for young people to be a part of the conversation. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's been you know, it has changed a lot for just the gun violence prevention movement in general. And I do see them talking about the intersections of gun violence, police violence, mm-hmm. um, everyday shootings and things like that. Um, and, and I do think that one of the things that, you know, we've seen as, as, as a challenge and not, this is not directly with the, the students there because we've worked with students that are students of color um, uh, from, from Parkland, um, which I think has around 30% of their students that are there are, are students of color. Um, that they are um, really trying to also make sure that they're not speaking for um, all the rest Mm. of the communities that are impacted every day and so that they're not just going to Chicago or to Baltimore or to other cities where we work where there's the everyday struggle of not having the cameras there and not having the funding um, but not showing up with the cameras and saying, hey, all these people are, you know, are struggling and then leaving the next day. But I think that we're right. trying to push the conversation around and say, 
hey, just showing up with cameras is not okay, but also where, you know, trying to make sure that there's the long-term work and resources are being put in those communities as well, which I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic that that is, that's what's going to happen. But I think that, um, yeah, just in looking, I'm, I'm uh, an older millennial, <laughs> and so I'm not good <laughs> on Twitter or anything like that, but just even seeing what students, some students of color that aren't from Parkland, from New York and Baltimore and all these places that have had their voices heard um, has been really exciting. And also, um, mm. I think, you know, um, I, you know, I, I think I'm an older version of what an executive director should look like um, and that people, <laughs> you know, in their 20s and in early 30s should be the people who are, are leading organizations in the progressive movement. And so it also um, is, is just been exciting to see that. But I do think that, you know, it, for people of color and specifically working on an issue that has been such a third rail issue, um, it was really, it, and I'll be honest, it was very disappointing for me personally um, to see the same people from even gun violence prevention organizations that I wanted to work with over the last couple of years um, rush over to work with the Parkland students um, and mm. still not want to work with us um, and right. still not want to work with our young people that come from communities that were ravaged by gun violence every day or people who are formerly incarcerated. So, you know, I, I still think the same some of the same issues um, that probably exist in a lot of communities and a lot of different um I'm sure it's the same in, like, the women's movement and different things like that. But I think mm-hmm. in particular, um, that's been disappointing. But I think that there are enough of us that are, um, that are willing to keep fighting that um, it, it will hopefully change soon. Absolutely. I've found it um, really heartening when I think about the future of these movements to recognize, as you said, that the students themselves are often the ones that are doing a a decent job of um, stepping up and stepping back and elevating other voices and that it's kind of the um, other organizations and the media narrative around it that's not doing as good a job of saying, you know, this story has multiple points of view. Um, And so when I think about the up and coming leaders um, and their willingness to um, either you know, already be part of that intersectional conversation or to recognize the like need for it and the criticism when it arises and make those changes. Um, that's something that I'm like, yeah, okay, we're we're getting better. The, the, the students are the students are demonstrating that we're getting better. Um, so turning a little bit to uh, the adults who are actually the the lawmakers right now, um can you tell me a little bit more about how? CJRC engages uh, lawmakers in particular in your work. Um, and I know you mentioned that it's at the you know, regional, state, and national level. So how are um, our actual elected officials um, interacting with your group? Yeah, so we are interacting um, mostly on the city and state level and then uh, on some levels also the, the federal level by mm. um, mostly doing trainings and making sure that elected officials and, you know, public policymakers understand what their, what we believe is their duty as, um, uh, as public officials to keep communities safe. And so a lot of what we do is education. So we have mo- monthly webinars that all people are invited to, um, and including elected officials and their staffers that really go through the nuts and bolts of what it takes to be an advocate around gun violence prevention, specifically centering communities of color um, at the crux of, of what the solutions look like. And so we've put together, um, you know, one-pagers, 
white papers, different things like that that are resources that, you know, I used to work for a member of Congress and I also used to work in state government for an elected official and I know that they're very busy and sometimes they just want someone to like put pieces of paper in front of them mm-hmm. and say, here's what's happened in another state and here's how you can, <laughs> we can do it here and this is how much it's going to cost. So we have done that and we can give it to an elected official and so a lot of what we're doing is we're actually going into cities, we're going into states, and we're training elected officials, partners, advocates to either do it themselves and lead, the, lead you know, inside the state capitol or um, outside the state capitol or making sure that their people are holding their elected officials accountable. And so um, this last year or so has been the first times that we've done the training specifically with, with lawmakers. Um, we partner with a lot of organizations like the Association of State Legislators to Prevent Gun Violence, and so they have state legislators in all 50 states um, that are from both sides of the aisle but are committed to reducing gun violence. And so we were out at their conference um, in L.A. earlier this year doing um, training and talking to folks, and we'll continue to work mostly with we want to go where people already are um, instead of mm. making everyone come to us. And so we'll be in a lot of local local cities and states across the country. We're going to be in Baltimore in the uh, beginning of, of September and then in New York in this, the end of September um, doing specific trainings that um, we will um, have elected officials and other community members at as well. Excellent. Um, so before I wrap up, I always like to ask our guests, to talk a little bit about something that is making you feel optimistic, um, since I think sometimes with the news cycle, it can feel really challenging to latch on to things that are seeming positive. So I was wondering if you have any stories or people or things that are making you feel good today. All the future black governors of the United States of America. Mm. <laughs> um, so I am really excited about uh, Stacey Abrams and Ben Jealous and Andrew Gillum, and specifically Andrew Gillum, we met each other in college. Um, when we met, um, a mutual friend of ours, Sharon Letman um, Hicks said, um, you know, he's going to be governor. And we were, I was 18 or 19, <laughs> and I was like, no, uh, no, no. He's like maybe going to be president of Florida A&M University. I went to Florida State, he went to Florida <laughs> A&M, and in the next couple of years we met each other. But um I was like, he'll be president. He's like very smart. Like he's going places, but he's gonna be governor of Florida. And then I've just watched his trajectory, his um, poise. I haven't known Stacy and, and Ben as as long, but um, it's just been inspiring because he's never had to um, be, uh, you know, mean to people. Um, he's never had mm-hmm. to um, uh, um, uh, back down to people. Though um, one of the things I think people don't know about him is that. He took on the NRA and he won um, when he was mayor mm. of Tallahassee, currently is mayor of Tallahassee, but he um, uh, was sued by the NRA for trying to stop them for some different initiatives that they were trying to put in, in Tallahassee. And he sued them, or I'm sorry, he went to, he brought them to court and because he, they, they were going to put litigation around him and, and he won. And so mm. um, he's unafraid and you don't see that a lot of days. It, and when there are tough times, especially since 2016, it's been hard to really find bright lights of elected officials that are willing to not back down. And so I think all of them exhibit that behavior. And the fact that we could have our first black female governor is just so exciting. And so that's, those, are, those are the people that are inspiring me. And then I'm from Texas, and so Beyonce always inspires me. <laughs> so those are, those are the, the people yes. that I'm excited about right now. 100%. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, I got goosebumps hearing you say that your friend, you know, predicted he would be governor um, however long ago. That's so yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, I, I 
we usually mention the election results at the top of the show. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought it around because yesterday was so, so exciting. Um, yeah. Twitter was just blowing up when the um, when the election, you know, began to show that Andrew was going to win. So I'm really, really, really excited. And I can't wait to, um, you know, as you said, support these these wonderful people that are out there fighting to be governors. Mm-hmm. Um, so where can our listeners learn more about CJRC's work and follow you on social media? Yeah, I am on, um, we are at, our website is www.communityjusticerc.com. And um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I just changed my Twitter handle. And so I think it's Amber K. Goodwin, at Amber K. Goodwin. Um, and that's where you can find us. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amber. It was so great to talk to you. Okay, great. Thanks. So wonderful to have Amber join me today, and it's just incredible to hear about what CJRC is doing. Definitely check them out, um, see how you can get involved. Obviously, gun violence is a perpetual problem in this country, and anything that we can do to support organizations that are working to fight against this epidemic is um, beneficial to all of us. So thank you again, Amber, for being on the podcast today. All right, so on to the call to action. Um, As in previous weeks, we know that Brett Kavanaugh's nomination is still something that we can block. He has not been put on the Supreme Court yet. And the more that we learn about Brett Kavanaugh's positions, the scarier he becomes. And especially now that President Trump has been implicated in crimes, it's particularly critical that we have a Supreme Court justice who doesn't believe that the president is above the law. So September 4th, the Senate Judiciary Committee is slated to begin hearings on the nomination of Kavanaugh. And the seriousness of the potential crimes that Trump may have committed, um, as indicated by Michael Cohen in his guilty plea, um, makes it really clear that these hearings need to be delayed until more information is known about Trump's criminal liability. Um, And the reason for that is that in 2009, Brett Kavanaugh argued in a Minnesota Law Review article that a sitting president should not be distracted by lawsuits or criminal investigations or even have to answer questions from a prosecutor, which means that if Kavanaugh is confirmed to the Supreme Court, there's a high likelihood that he would decide the exact question of if Trump is subpoenaed by Mueller if he has to testify. Um, So... We need the Supreme Court to t- compel him to do that so we know exactly what happened in the course of all of these potential criminal um, actions. And Kavanaugh is not the kind of person that would hold Trump accountable. So we need to tell our senators to, to suspend the hearings on Kavanaugh until more is known. So our friends at fivecalls.org, they have a handy Kavanaugh confirmation tracker where you can see where each and every senator stands on the confirmation. Check to see where your senator stands, then click on Suspend Kavanaugh Hearings in the Wake of Cohen Guilty Plea for numbers and call scripts. Call your senators no matter where they are on the confirmation tracker. We need as many senators as possible to get behind the suspension of the hearing, so call today. All right, now it is time for the Golden Pantsuit, which this week goes to an absolutely brilliant woman who celebrated a milestone birthday this weekend. Um, So on Sunday, Katherine Johnson turned 100, and she is the NASA mathematician whose brilliance sent the first Americans into space. Um, And hopefully you've read or seen Hidden Figures, and if you haven't, please go do that right now because the book is amazing, the movie is amazing, get out there. Um, But to honor her on her birthday, Johnson alma mater, West Virginia State University, where I'd like to point out she attended when she was 14 years old, smarty pants, 
Um, they honored her with both a statue and a scholarship in her name. And the first two young women to receive her scholarship are studying, as you may have guessed, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, completely appropriate. So let's hear from an interview last year um, when Catherine was 99 or 98, a recent NASA interview with Catherine about her work and legacy. Well, the main thing is I liked what I was doing. I liked work. I liked the stars and the stories we were telling. And it was a joy to contribute to the literature that was going to be coming out. But little did I think it would go this far. I love that quote so much. I like the stars and the stories we were telling. I just, I think that's so poetic and so beautiful from someone who was doing such concrete mathematical work um, in service of a really incredible dream. So uh, golden pants to Katherine Johnson. Happy 100th birthday. You deserve every recognition and honor coming your way. So thank you so much to our guest this week, Amber Goodwin, and to our team at Cadence 13. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review if you like what you hear. It helps other people find us. Find us at pantsuitnation.org. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at pantsuitnation. And subscribe to our Facebook Messenger platform by going to our Facebook page and clicking Sign Up. We'll be back next week. Hopefully Libby will be improved and be able to join me. And until then, remember that this democracy is your democracy, so please stay engaged. Stay engaged.